started. As this is getting passed out, it's going to um, give a little more information. But what I have on here, and it's really hard to see on the screen, but if we can put up this, it's really hard to see on the screen. But it's on your handout. Yay. So this is the chrono- um, chronology of the Old Testament. And I know you've had some, you know, some of these messages that have been leading up to the passage today. So we're digging into, again, Ezra and Nehemiah, the book, which is actually, it's been divided, but it's one book in the Bible. And what I want you to see here is that this is what the chronological Bible looks like. So even though in the Old Testament we have it, you know, these books kind of going in what we think um, seems to be an order, and you may think that that's the order. It really is not the order at all. And um, so this is really helpful to be able to look at. And if we look at, um, the Bible is one story from beginning to end. And so we have in the beginning, just to kind of give a big, you know, quick recap of the Bible, we had um, in this one story, we had where man um, sinned in the garden, and then we had where God creates this restoration plan. At one point, he calls a man named Abraham, and they form a nation by the name of Israel. And then Israel was put into slavery in Egypt. And um, they were in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then Moses comes along and brings them out of the prom- in, into the promised land. At that point, then they ask for different kings to be able to support them. They become wicked. They fall into idolatry. The prophets warn them this whole time. And then God sends the people into exile. So that is what happened here. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah takes place when the people come back from exile as God had promised. So he didn't leave them hopeless when he went. He actually he prophesied that when they would go to Babylon, that it would be 70 years, and then they would return. So last week, you guys had studied Ezra chapters 1 through 6 was what you looked at. So if you can put the next slide up. I have it on your handout. Um, here, what I want you to see is that we have three different main sections of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the first one you learned about last week was Ezra 1 through 6. And this was where Zerubbabel comes back. And you can see under here we have some of the prophets. Um, so Haggai and Zechariah fall under here. Then we have this gap. We have a, almost what they think is a 60-year gap. So between when Steve, <laughs> when Steve preached on last week and when I'm preaching on this week, 60 years have gone by. But it's so hard to get that, you know, you think you just chap, you know, go from chapter 6 to chapter 7, it's easy to miss <laughs> what happened. And actually, this is so amazing. In between this time, in these 60 years, guess what book was written? Esther. Esther. Oh. The book of Esther takes place between in this 57-year gap. And this is so, I love how God works. Um, but we've been talking about this. How many times do you see, it's worded way different in different, um, different translations, but how many times in the Old Testament do you see the words, it just so happened, right? <laughs> and it's like, that's God. Do we see this in our own life? I mean, all the time I'm like, it just so happened that, da, 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 da. You know, and Esther is a book that doesn't even mention God, but there is this just so happened all along the way. Well, I have a fun God story that was a just so happened this week. Um, was that back in January, I kept coming across um, this thing called Bible Recap, which was reading through the Bible in one year. And I have some really good friends of mine um, who we have done, like, we have done the U versions, you know, studies together. So they always would pick them, and there'd be like a week or seven days, you know, and, you know, 14 days, whatever. And so I had never picked one. So I was like, I kept like seeing this, and I like reach out to, you know, a couple of my friends. I'm like, 
hey, well, how about this one? And I, I send them the plan, so they accept it because they love me. And then they're like, wait, this is a year? <laughs> so I totally, like, you know, I didn't mean to, but, you know, I get them into this. Well, it just so happened that we started, because we, I didn't have this thought until January 19th. So January 19th, we, st- we started. It just so happened that this week was Ezra. Oh. So we read Ezra 1 through 6. Then guess where we jumped? Esther. Because chronological, it's a chronological Bible. So we jumped into Esther. And then guess what was on Friday? Ezra 7 through 10. My passage. Like, how cool is that? Like, our God is that good. Like, I love that, you know? And so, and I wouldn't have put this together with this whole, you know, part with Esther. You know, it just really, like, the richness of the study of Esther really gives such good insights for us as we look at this today. Um, And so... We have um, 60 years after the temple was rebuilt. So let's go, Steve, what he talked about last week. 60 years after that, um, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, appoints Ezra to lead another group of Jews to Judah, and he's giving him money and supplies, and he wants him to beautify the temple is what we're looking at. Um, And so who is this king that we see here? So this guy's name is King Artaxerxes. So let's think about Esther the king in Esther is King Xerxes. And so it is thought that King Xerxes is Artaxerxes' dad. Okay. Oh. And if you know the story of Esther, I mean, such a crazy God story going on there. The Jews were going to be annihilated. But what happens in that story is that there is the cousin kind of dad figure of Esther. His name is Mordecai. And he ends up finding favor with King Xerxes. And in the end of the story, he becomes second in command of all of Persia, right? So now, let's fast forward, a couple, you know, somewhere in this time frame, we have his son, King Artaxerxes. You wonder why he is predisposed to the Jews. Like, you know, he would have seen this guy that was his dad's second-hand man. And then here he is wanting to send Ezra back to this place and bless it. Like, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like, this isn't out of nowhere. So we have, you know, where God moves in the hearts of these kings, and it's just such a cool thing that I just so happened to be reading Esther (laughs) Esther this week. Um, Okay, so we're going to dig in the next slide. Who is Ezra? And so we're going to look at who Ezra is. I have four chapters, and so we are not going to read all four chapters. I would encourage you this week to get in your Bible and really read through this. But I'm going to just pull out bits and pieces of these four chapters so that we can get, you know, just a good view of what's going on. And then, and I'm telling you, like, I think out of, like, the, I'm just going to say this, I think I drew the short straw when they were, like, picking, like, who had what, because we're going to get into some really crazy messed up stuff today. Okay? (laughs) So I'm going to warn you. But I think we're going to see Jesus in the end. Um... Of this, And so we are going to dig into this passage. And so you may have some questions, and I would just encourage you, like, dig into this passage, you know, this week. So who is Ezra? And it says this. In Ezra um, 7, 6, it says that Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given him. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord was upon him. 
That's a pretty cool line, right? Like, I want that to be said to me. The hand of the Lord was upon her. Like, that is such a cool thing. Um, in verse 10, it says that Ezra devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and the laws of Israel. So this is what he did. He devoted himself to the study of the law. In verse 11, it says he was a priest and a teacher of the law. So we start here. We, got, we have Ezra, and he gets a letter from King Artaxerxes, who's the king of Persia. And he's sending Ezra back with a bunch of other Jews to Persia, in Persia, back to Jerusalem. And listen to this. Like, if you read in this passage, you're just going to have to trust me as you like to get. He's sending back anybody that wants to go. He's saying, anybody that wants to go with you can go. And he's also sending with massive blessings and provisions. What an exciting commissioning for Ezra. He's a Torah scholar, and he's being sent back to teach the scriptures to all the exiles in Jerusalem. Remember last week, Steve's talking about all these exiles went back. So now we have Ezra that's going to get to go. Listen to how crazy this is. Scholars think that Ezra was maybe around 22 years old. That gives you some perspective, right? Like, wow. So we have this young guy, and this if he's this age, right, he's only been in exile. Right? He was born in Babylon. Like, this is where he was born. And chances are, this is his first time that he's heading to Jerusalem. And here he has this message from the Lord. He's been studying the scriptures, and it's a huge assignment with a lot of authority. But he knows that his assignment has ultimately come from God, and his authority for his teaching has come from God. So he knows where his strength lies. Um, after he gets the letter from Artaxerxes, he praises God for putting the plans in the king's heart. How cool is this? Like, he knows that it's God that put this thought into King Artaxerxes' heart. Um, and it says this, I took courage for the hand of the Lord God was on me. The awareness of God's nearness banishes fear and imparts courage. Do you hear that in Ezra? Like, listen to that again. He took courage because the hand of the Lord was on him, and that banishes fear and imparts courage. That's a word for us, right? Okay, the next slide I have on here is, how long does this journey take? Um, so, you know, like I said, we can read through these things. It's just a short verse. It's like, what does this mean? So it says in 7-9, seven, seven, for on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of God was upon him. So this took about four months, and the distance that they would have been traveling was about, if you, it was a direct shot, it would have been 500 miles that they were traveling, but you can't go directly because of mountains and things in your way. So they think it would have been about a 900-mile journey that they were on. So keep that in mind. I mean, you can see where it's like everybody's allowed to go back, but you can see maybe where, you know, people that they're comfortable with Babylon, you know, they don't want to go on this journey. There's a lot to to this. And so 900 miles is what they cover. Next slide. How many people are going back? According to the counts, and if you read through, there's a lot of, you know, it lists this person, this person, this person. The total count was 1,496 men were in the group. So then we add on women and children. This is in Ezra 8.21. We can surmise that the total that was coming um, with Ezra was about six to 7,000. So imagine that too. Six to 7,000 people are on this 900-mile journey that's going to take four months to be able to um, accomplish. How are, the next slide is, how are they protected? And I love this part. 
Um, so this is in Ezra 8. So now we've, you know, we've jumped to the next chapter. Ezra 8, verses 21 to 23. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahavah to humble ourselves before God. Listen to, listen to Ezra. Listen to these words. To seek him, a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all of our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us. From the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, listen to why he's ashamed, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who abandon him. So we fasted and sought God concerning this matter, and he listened to our pleading. He did not want to ask the king for protection, because he's like, here I am, like filled with faith. And I'm going to ask the king to be my protector, but God's our protector, right? So he's saying, though, he's like, we got to... We got to seek the Lord, right? We have to seek the Lord, and His hand will be upon us, and His protection is going to come from us. We don't need it from man. We need God to step in. So He fasts and He prays that God will protect Him. And it says in um, verse 32 that they arrived in Jerusalem on the fourth day. And so they made it and they were protected. There's all kinds of enemies. That's treacherous territory when you're traveling. You know, you're weak and vulnerable. You have women, you have children, you have possessions. You are not fast moving. So it would be an easy target. So you can see that God was the one that protected them. All right, so they arrive in Jerusalem. They finally get there. And it says that they spent the first, they rested the first three days. That's a long journey. Give them a little break, right? So they rest for three days. Um, in verse 35, and then it says, on the fourth day, they offered sacrifices to the Lord God of Israel. So here they are. This is, you know, the rhythm. Ezra's leading them um, in, in being able to seek the Lord. But what is the problem that they face? You know, we always have this, right? If you ever read stories, you have this, like, you know, it comes to, like, a climax, and there's, like, something that happens, and this is where we're getting to in this story. So we hit chapter 9, and we find a problem. And this is in um, Ezra 9, verses 1 through 3. Now, when these things had been completed, the officials approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests of the Levites have not separated themselves with the peoples of the land. And it lists all these nations around them, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. So the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Okay, we're going to dig into this a little more. It is confusing. Indeed, the hand of the officials and the leaders have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. Okay, so there's a problem. You know, Ezra comes. Remember, he's this young, new leader. He sees that there is a problem going on. And so what is Ezra going to do? What's his response? In verse 3, um, 9 verse 3, it says, When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled out some of my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. Um, he is distraught because of the unfaithfulness of the returned exiles. His sor- he's sorrowful when he learns that some of the Jews in Jerusalem have married out of covenant. So this is you know, what he comes into. And then in verse 4 it says, Then everyone who was frightened by the words of the Lord God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered around me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Okay. So what does Ezra do about the, the problem? His response is, you know, he's, he's coming, he's, you know, he's, um, his response is, you know, he's appalled, he's pulling out his hair and his beard, and, I mean, he is distraught by this, and what is he going to do? And we see in verse 5, there's a beautiful prayer of confession. It says, but at the evening offering, I stood up from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, I bowed down on my knees, I spread my hands to the Lord my God. 
Ezra's confession is humble. If you look in verses 6 through 15, you'll see, and he, this is what he keeps saying, and I love this part of it. Our sins, our guilt, God has been gracious to us, our evil deeds. He's including himself. He wasn't back here, right? Like, he just arrived. He wasn't the one that had done these things. But he's saying, we, together, we have grieved the Lord. And um, so what do the people do? What happens when he does this? And in, in, now we're in chapter 10. 10.1 says, Now while Ezra, Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, and the people wept greatly. So now, you know, they're following his lead, they're weeping, and um, he counsels the people to repent and to make a covenant, to put away their sins, you know, to now to walk in faithfulness. Um, and so what happens? Like, what ends up being the solution to the problem? So if we look, and I want you to look at this very carefully here, in verses, in chapter 10, verses 2, um, verses two through 5, listen to this. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, says to Ezra, okay, so this guy comes up to Ezra. He's one of the leaders, all right? And this is what he says. We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet, now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let's make a covenant with our God to send away all the wives and the children. Following the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra stood and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all of Israel take an oath that they would do this proposal. So they took an oath. Wow. There's a lot to this. So this guy comes, and he's saying, okay, yeah, we made a mistake. Let's fix it. We're going to take all these women and all these children, and we are going to send them away. And that's how we're going to fix it. Does that sit no. badly with you? <laughs> it kind of sits badly with me. Can I tell you where my angst was when I was doing this? I'm telling you, the majority of commentators say this is good. The majority of commentators. So now I'm in a dilemma. You know, <laughs> I'm like, this is not the heart of Jesus. So we are going to break this down. And uh, like I said, I think I drew the short straw, but I think God, like... <laughs> was meeting me <laughs> in this. And um, it was actually really fun to see the heart of the Father um, in this. But we are going to unpack it, I promise. I'm not going to leave you at this place. Um, so the question I have is, is this what God wanted? The story is strange for a number of reasons. Number one, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. Right? It was the leaders of Jerusalem who came to Ezra with this decree. It says this one commentator, a female commentator named Tara Lee Cobble, says they're making a covenant with God to do something God never told them to do. He told them not to marry pagans, but he never told them to divorce pagans. They're assuming that this is what God wants. So here we have, I mean, this is a, you know, a crazy scenario that's happening here. We see like, you know, where Ezra is. Um, it says in verse 5, it says, Then Ezra stood and made the leading priests and the Levites and all of them take an oath. And then in verses t- uh, 10 and 11, it says this. Listen to what Ezra says. Ezra the, police, the priest stood up and said, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. 
So here we have, you know, a couple verses down. Ezra, he's putting this out there, right? And then if you read through it, I mean, it just gives all the list of these people who have married foreign women. And we're caught in this very, very complicated situation that we're looking at. And um, so we're going to, like I said, we're going to dig into this a little bit more, but I want you to look at Malachi. Okay, let's go to your little chart here, okay? Go to chart one. Where does Malachi fall in this chart? Right above Ezra Nehemiah at the end, okay? So what does that mean? It means that Malachi is a contemporary prophet during this time, okay? So we have all of these prophets that are around this time. And I want you to read this passage in, um, or hear this passage in Malachi. Malachi 2 says this, listen very carefully. And this is another thing. So this is a prophet who's like, hey, I have a problem with some things that are going on, okay? We don't know exactly when this is written, but he's around this time, okay? Listen to this. Another thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and sighing, because he no longer gives attention to the offering and accepts it with favor. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness to you and the wife of your youth against you have, whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your marriage companion, your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And why the one? He was seeking a godly offering. Be careful then about your spirit and see that none of you deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And he who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of the armies. So be careful about your spirit and do not deal treacherously. This is written, like, do you imagine that this could have been written after this happens? Right? If we're looking at this is around that time. And here we have Malachi that's saying, no, like, divorce is not supposed to happen. That is not what God is saying. This is the wife of your youth, you know? And, like, think about this happening at this time. Like I said, he is a contemporary process, or prophet who's, um, who is um, prophesying at this time. And um, so the question arises, did he write this in response to what happened here? There is nothing to make us to believe, and listen to this, there's nothing that makes me believe that Ezra does not have anything but a sincere heart, okay? Um, he has a desire to obey, to, that the people obey the, the Torah. Remember, he set his heart to study the Lord and to study the law. This is who he is. So this is complicated. You know, here we have you know, Ezra, who really is you know, this prophet of the Lord. Um, he's a scribe of God of heaven. He's distraught, right? He pulled his beard out and his hair. He's prostrate on the ground. He's distraught by what happened. Um, but here, Ezra looked in the Torah and correctly identified the principle that God's people needed set apart, right? That was a correct principle. However, he goes about applying this principle by using ethnicity as the dividing line between God's people and the people of the land. That becomes the dividing line. I want you to look at this on this slide. We have um, Leviticus 18.1. Let me see here. There we go. Okay. Look at this, guys. For you, in Leviticus, it says this, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And then here in Ezra 9, the word changes from holy people to race in meaning. It says, thus the holy seed has mixed itself with the people of the land. The holy seed is race. 
right? So we have a, a little bit of a change of the wording here, which is, you know, we can easily take something, we can lift it out of an original context, and we have to be so careful about what we do. So let's ask ourselves this question. If we look at the Old Testament and other places in the Torah, right? So when we have something complicated that we come across in Scripture, this is a great thing to be able to, to tuck away in your mind. If you have a passage, you're like, this just does not seem like the heart of the Father. There's something about this that just seems off to me. You feel a little angst inside of you. It has to align. It's one story, right? It has to align with Scripture. So we have to... We have to look what's the heart of God in other places as we look in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the Torah. And so, what does the rest of the Bible have to say? Do we see marriages with foreigners in the people of God? So let's think about this. So as I started kind of down this journey, first of all, Joseph was given an Egyptian wife who was a senith. All right, two of Joseph's, Joseph's and his and Asenus, two sons become two of the tribes of Israel, right? So Joseph, it doesn't say Joseph. His two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are two of the, the tribes of Israel. Um, so think about, we go a little bit further on. Moses, he's the one who's the conqueror. He's going to like lead people out of the, you know, out of Egypt. And he spends 40 years in the wilderness. And who's he married in the wilderness? Zipporah, right? And Zipporah is a Midianite who is also referred to as a Cushite woman, right? Zipporah, this is a crazy part of scripture. You want to go find something wild? When Moses first goes to go back to Egypt, remember, he's like, no, 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 don't send me. You know, and then he finally agrees. There's a really weird passage (laughs) where they start on this journey back. And all of a sudden, God is so angry with him. And he's ready to kill Moses. Read it. Crazy parts of scripture. And Zipporah saves Moses' life because he was supposed to circumcise his boys and he didn't. And Zipporah gets out the flint and, and the knife and does it and saves his life. I mean, crazy. So here we have Zipporah, who is, right? Like here we have this Midianite woman who is the one who's doing this. Let's look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. Think about this. There are five women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Two of the five. Are, one, is, um, one is Rahab and one is Ruth. Rahab is the prostitute who is saved from Jericho. And so Rahab is a Canaanite. She becomes the mother of Boaz. So she ends up getting grafted into the family of God. So they have a son. His name is Boaz. Boaz becomes the king's room redeemer. And Ruth marries Ruth. Who is Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite. She's a despised woman. So two of the five women in Jesus' genealogy are not from the, the race, right? Are they part of the people, but not the race? The ethnicity cannot be the dividing line. Do you hear this? So the question, what about the women and children that are sent away? Okay, here's another question that I'm like, my gosh, what about these people? What does God's heart look like in other parts of Scripture for women and children that are sent away. Immediately, my mind goes to Hagar, right? So we have a messy situation. Anytime there's two wives or more involved, it's not pretty. If Michael was married to someone else, it would not be pretty. Like, we would not do well together. I can tell you that. And I would probably win. <laughs> I might have sent somebody away, you know? Like, I don't know. 
a messiness going on. Um, but Hagar gets sent away with Ishmael, right? And what does it say here? I have a slide on here. Genesis 21. It says, God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. And he said to her, what's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear for the God has, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Get up, lift up the boy, hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. God's heart, he doesn't abandon, right? In this situation where something, you know, they're being sent away, God shows up. There's, you know, part of this where it's like this becomes where we talk about El Roy, the God that sees. This is where this comes from. You know, here in these passages of Hagar being despised and being sent away, we find that his name, the God who sees as he's with them. So what can we glean from this text for us today? What are some applications or things that we can get? And on the back of your paper, I have this on there. Um, So these are questions for us to consider. The first thing, and is we're going to look at, you know, as I want you to think about how Ezra responded, and then we're going to look at some ideas of how Jesus responds, right? Because we're always pointing to Jesus. Um, and so let's think about this today. So the first question I have is, what voice are you listening to? Ezra listens to man's solution, but Jesus listens to his father's voice. So let's think about, remember... When Ezra was traveling, remember I said in the beginning they were traveling, they realized they hadn't asked the king for the provisions, right? Um, but at that point, Ezra stops and he inquires of the Lord. And um, I'm, I've done this chronological reading of the Bible since January 19th. And all the time, we've gone through every, all these kings and all these like you know, terrible things. And I cannot tell you how many times it says, they inquired of the Lord. Or it says, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Right? So here we have this part. And when I look at what Ezra did, you know, in this part of the passage, when we look at that part, in that when Shechaniah comes along, it never says that Ezra stopped. It doesn't say that he inquired of the Lord. It doesn't say that, hey, let's stop. Let's fast right now. Let's see what God's heart is for this. Let's inquire of the Lord together. We say at the tab all the time, we hear the Lord better together. Right? And so this is not being said. It, you know, we don't know who Shechaniah is. We don't know where this word came from. But this is, you know, this is where this passage um, looks like. I, I was a communications major in college, and there's a, a communications theory called groupthink, right? And this happens, you know, and, like, we see this where it's like, okay, yeah, this seems like a good idea. Yeah, like, you know, let's just, we need to make this problem right. We need to make it right now. Let's just do this and make it go away. And so it can become this idea of this group thing, think that's going on. Let's contract this with what we know about Jesus. And I have this passage on your handout from John 15, 19. It says, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. How does Jesus make hard decisions? What does it look like? I love when Jesus goes to to decide who the 12 disciples are going to be, it says this in Luke 6. Now it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night 
in prayer with God. And then he came down, and then he called the disciples to him and chose 12. Where does he get his information from? He's inquiring of the Lord. And this is the Trinity. I can't understand all this, but Jesus is fully man in this moment. He's inquiring of the Lord to make his decision. So some questions I have for you and me to ask ourselves. Are you spending time with the Father to know his heart and to hear his voice? Can you think of times where you listen to the voice of people and human wisdom instead of God's? And what happened at that time? Yesterday I was reading, um, if anybody's ever read um, Sarah Young's Jesus Calling book, um, every once in a while like, I have it sitting there and I'll you know, pull it up. And yesterday it said this. It just so happened yesterday. It said, even well-meaning friends can lead you astray if you let them usurp my place in your life. And it's, as, it's speaking from the Father speaking in that moment. Even well-meaning friends. If Michael and I do not spend time alone together and grow in our relationship, um, there's often where it can become, become complicated. Sometimes we even have to get alone away together, you know, in our marriage. Like, you know, if there's too much, you know, time that we don't even have, like, this alone time together. Um, I can tell in our marriage where we're running in, you know, different directions. He's actually in the Dominican Republic right now. I'm here. Like, our lives are, like, you know, often going in two different directions. Um, so this week was a little crazy. He was getting ready to leave for this trip on Friday. And, um... And that when we're not spending time together, it can lead to us not being on the same page. Do you guys ever have that happen in relationships, friendships, marriages? And so um, bad things can happen out of that. And so this week, our son Carter got left twice. (laughs) Once at soccer practice. (laughs) And once at a youth group that he was at. Because we were not communicating well and on the same page. Because we weren't spending time together. I said, um, you know, years down the road when Carter's in therapy, we'll know why. Um, but listen, it's the same in our relationship with Jesus. We have to spend time together to be on the same page, right? We have to make plans. Um, we have to make plans to spend time together to be on the same page and to be able to figure out direction. Number two, the question I have here is, are you operating out of faith? Are you operating out of fear? Or are you operating out of faith? Ezra operates out of fear and anxiety. We need to look at God and not our circumstances. And here, I do think, again, I do think Ezra has a good heart. I think he wants the best. But remember, he was born in exile. And imagine that he's so fearful. I would imagine he's coming back. He's finding this mess on his hands. You know, right? He's a young leader. And it's easy to let fear take over. Um, you know, like I said, you know, it's imagined that he might only be 22 years old and he could be so fearful that if they don't get this right, they're going to go back into exile where God is just going to say, I am done with you people and just wipe them out. You can imagine, like I, I imagine that Ezra has a lot of fear. Um, I know one commentator said this young Ezra is devastated at what's happening in, in Jerusalem. What are God's people doing? What has he been assigned to lead? Imagine that. He pulls out his own hair and his beard. He tears his clothes. He falls in the ground in mourning. And he goes to the only place where he knows where to go, Yahweh. He confesses the sins of the people. He recounts God's great love to them through their rebellion, acknowledging that God has not punished them according to what they deserve. He says that God has shown mercy in response to their sins. He says that God has shown grace, giving them favor. He granted them a chance to rebuild. Ezra seems legitimately terrified that God is going to say, enough, I've given you a second chance and you've blown it, just kill them all. Mm -hmm. 
There's a heavy weight of responsibility that Ezra is, is filling here. But the Bible is filled with passages that tell us to not fear and to have faith, right? We could think of, we could think of thousands of passages, you know, all through scripture where this happens, and we need to look at God and not our circumstances. Often in God's economy, the decision of faith does not make sense. One passage, I mean, we could put out so many. One passage immediately that came to mind was that story of Gideon with the army. You know, remember, he has 32,000 men, and God's like, too many of you, you know? And he's like, wipe it down, 22,000, gone. You know, go back home. So they're left with 10,000 men. Remember that? And then it's like, okay, they lap the water a certain way. And it ends up in the end, 300 men are left from 32,000. And then do you remember the battle plan? What the battle plan looked like? What did they have in their hands? Um, It was jars and torches. (laughs) Okay? So we're going to, and then all 300, the 100 were supposed to go here, 100 here, and 100 here. So now there's only 100 together. And they have torches and jars in their hands. These are not the typical weapons that you're going to fight with. And then this is the battle plan. Blow the trumpets. (laughs) And when the trumpet sounds... I want everyone to blow, when one trumpet sounds, I want everybody to blow their trumpets and break the jars and then hold the torches and shout. And when this happens, the Lord turns the swords of the Midianite soldiers against one another and the entire army runs away. That's not operating in fear, right? There's a lot of faith going on in that passage. What about Jesus? Jesus shows us how to face the worst fear ever, death on a cross. He knows what's coming. And I love, I heard this worded like this years ago called the prayer of relinquishment. And it says that Jesus goes to the mountain of olives and prays and he says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me, but yet not my will, but yours be done. And so questions I hear, where is God wanting you to make decisions out of faith and not fear? What happened in your life when you made decisions out of fear? There's a, um, a quote I have on there, whatever you have to manipulate to get is never yours to keep. Mm-hmm. That was a life-changing quote that I heard about, um, it would have been about 15 years ago. And um, I remember this is the, the beginning of this was when um, I heard that quote and Grant was going to kindergarten. And there was this whole thing where there was one teacher that was like the best teacher in kindergarten, Miss Manganello. And everybody wanted their kid to have Miss Manganello. And I was told that you could call a school and request that teacher for your kid. And I was like, that sounds pretty good to me, you know. And I heard that quote, and I remember God was like, I don't want you to call. Like, I want you to trust me that whatever class I put your son in is going to be the right class for him. I remember wrestling with that because I thought, I'm really good at picking up the phone. <laughs> like, I have no problem and, um, <laughs> doing that. And I would say it was probably one of the first times where I would did this prayer of relinquishment. And I'm not saying it always works out that way, but wouldn't you know Grant ends up in Miss Manganello's class? Mm. And it was this beautiful faith-building small thing that would lead to thousands of other decisions and things going on with our kids and in our lives over the last 15 years that God was like, I want you to learn what this looks like. And finally, the third one is, how do we form a community? Ezra and the remnant coming back on a community that is based on race and separation. Here we show, um, instead, how does Jesus form a community? And Jesus says, all are welcome. Right? 
We think about, we learned last week, Kiara reached a, um, the, the press on campus and we talked about the Samaritans. You know, they hated each other because it's just a disagreement about where to worship that started all the way back here. You know, but yet God meets her and, um, and he tells her that, you know, the gospel, and she becomes the first evangelist that we know of, um, which is incredible. And so um, Luke 14 talks about the parable of a banquet. This is Jesus teaching. If Jesus said it, I believe it, right? Um, and in the end of this, it's like, you know, the parable of the banquet. It's like, invite all your friends, invite the nobles, invite these people. They don't come. And then he says instead, um, you know, I'm telling you to go out into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And do what God has called you to do. Um, so my questions here are, where are you operating in a way that you're separating yourself from people not like you? Maybe it's people who have different theological views, political views, different education, social status. We divide on all kinds of things. Um, do you include others the way Jesus includes others like the Samaritan woman? And the last question there is, where can you go low and lay down your preferences and allow Jesus to build your community with him? So I believe there's a lot of rich application um, in this passage, and I just want to um, just encourage you to really think about what God's speaking to you out of what he spoke um, in this passage to me and to Ezra as we looked at it. Thank you.